Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text from John 5. Pay close attention to the gospel of our God. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. Whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the son, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. That all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for these profound truths about your son that you have given to us, shared with us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Help us to understand and to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. can open your Bibles to John 5, what we just read. Our sermon text is really the last four verses of that passage, verses 21 to 24 in John 5. And today we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. Two weeks ago we looked at verses 16 to 20. Today we'll look at 21 to 24. And the big idea here, the title is like father, like son, the oneness of God and the godness of of Jesus, the, the big idea, the overall claim that Jesus is making in this passage is summarized at the end of verse 18. Look at the last five or so words of verse 18 in the New King James. It's the last five words. The Jews rightly understood what Jesus is saying about himself. He's claiming to be equal with God. Now, this is the, the words or thoughts of the Jews, but it's true. John is telling us that. What they thought is accurate. That is what Jesus is saying in essence. Even though those exact words did not come out of Jesus' mouth. To the Jews, this was an outrageous claim. Shocking. Blasphemous. They're not only stunned, but they're offended. They're outraged. Who is this? Who does this Galilean carpenter think that he is? How dare he make himself equal with God? 
is blasphemy. And the only thing they know to do to a blasphemer is to kill him. So the verse, first part of verse 18 says the Jews sought all the more to kill Jesus. The Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because they had determined that he was a lying lunatic. The only two options that we have when we read a passage like this where Jesus makes these kinds of claims. Either Jesus is telling the truth and he's equal with God or Jesus is lying and he is a blasphemer. And they chose the latter. But those are the only two options. Either Jesus is God. He says he is. We must worship him, honor him, or he's a lying lunatic. He's either the God man or a madman. He's either divine or deceptive. Everyone must make their choice. There's no third option. It's unreasonable to conclude that Jesus was just a man, that he was a good moral teacher, but that he was not God. It won't do to say that Jesus is not God, but he's, an, he's a spiritual example. Example of what? A, an example of a delusional, deceptive blasphemer? There's no virtue in claiming to be equal with God when you're not. I'll read you again from C.S. Lewis. I read this last two weeks ago, but I want to read it again for those of you who missed it. Remind those of you who heard it. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis says. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Now, up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has proven that he is not a liar or a lunatic. He's demonstrated over and over again that he is divine rather than delusional. He's given us every reason to believe that he is deity and not a deceiver. Deceivers don't conquer demons and death. Deceivers have no power over nature Like Jesus did. Deceivers don't speak with such profound wisdom. Wisdom that can only come from God as even Nicodemus recognized. Deceivers don't know everything about everyone's heart. They can't know the history of people they've never met. They can't read the thoughts of men as Jesus has done so far. Just in John's gospel. So we're left with one option. Jesus is who he claimed to be. Nicodemus, when he comes to Jesus, here's what he says. Now, remember, Nicodemus is the teacher in Israel, in Jerusalem, high profile figure here. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So even a person who had not yet come to accept Jesus 
as Lord, as the Christ, you could see that he was from God. And only God could accomplish these things in a person, through a person. Jesus was amazing people everywhere, even people at the top of Jewish society. And huge crowds gathered around him and watched him perform these healings, these miracles. They followed Jesus wherever he went because they had never seen anything like it. He was a divine miracle worker, not a deceptive madman. Now, of course, we've already seen in John and will continue to see in this gospel is that most of these people who are following Jesus, most of the people in these large crowds won't continue to follow Jesus long. They only follow him with superficial curiosity and shallow faith, temporary faith. In spite of all the signs and wonders, most of them left Jesus and they returned to their false religion, their man-made traditions. The God of this world, Satan, the devil, had blinded the minds of most of the people in Israel. They were blinded and they were in bondage to the legalistic religion that dominated the Jewish people. Verse 16 says that these legalistic Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. The beginning of John 5 is important context for our passage The story in John 5 verses 1 to 15 is an example of the kind of thing Jesus was doing on the Sabbath. Here's what happened. Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda. And there he found a man whose body had been withered for 38 years. We don't know if he was born this way or if he developed it at some point. But for 38 years, his body was withered. Now, Jesus could have met this man on any other day besides the Sabbath, but he didn't. He chose to meet him and to heal him on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And he tells the man, rise, take up your bed and walk. And that's exactly what the man does. He's healed instantaneously and he walks away. And then later, Jesus goes to the temple and finds the man. Perhaps he's there praying, giving thanks to God, maybe, for what this man did for him, making him well. Jesus finds this healed man. He tells him. You've been made well. Here's what it means. You've been healed to be holy. Verse 14. See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. You've been made well. Now you've got to deal with your sin. You've been healed. Now you've got to repent. I've saved you. Now you must bear fruit that is keeping with repentance. So go and sin no more. And the key thing is this healing took place on the Sabbath. So verse 16 says that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus for this. And how's Jesus going to respond to this? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? How's he going to deal with these accusations? And these motives? Jesus could have said something like, okay, let's discuss the Sabbath. We need to talk about how your restrictions are legalistic. They're man-made traditions and you can't support them from Scripture could have said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He could have made the argument that it's okay to pull an ox out of a pit on the Sabbath. And so surely it's okay to heal a man whose body has been dried up for 38 years on the Sabbath. Aren't men more important than oxen? 
Isn't it okay to do good on the Sabbath? These are the kinds of things he did say at other times. Doesn't it make sense to give someone rest from their infirmity on the day of rest? Jesus could have talked about the Sabbath. But instead, he escalates the discussion. Instead of cooling off the Jews and de-escalating the situation, Jesus fires up the fury. He ignites their indignation. He basically tells them that he can do what he wants on the Sabbath because he's God. You might be asking, you might be thinking when you read that, does Jesus want to die? Is he trying to get killed? And the answer, in some sense, is yes. Of course he wanted to die. That's why he came. Jesus didn't come to make peace. He came to get killed, ultimately. He came to start a revolution by dying on a cross. He came to bring down the proud. How? By allowing the proud to mock him and reject him and to kill him. So instead of keeping the conversation on the issue of the Sabbath, which probably wouldn't have helped anyway, if we look at the evidence from other places in the Gospels, Jesus intentionally provokes the Jews and he tells them that his actions are justified because... He's equal with God the Father. And God is his Father in a special way. So in verses 17 to 24, Jesus declares that he's equal with God in at least eight ways. We considered the first four two weeks ago. Let's review them briefly and then we'll look at the last four. Number one, Jesus is equal with God the Father in being. Another word for being is nature or essence or substance. Look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he was not. He not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And when Jesus says my father, they knew what he meant. They knew what he was saying. He was saying that God, the father, was his father in a unique way. Now, all Jews saw God as their father, our father. Jesus was saying something more. He was claiming to be one with the Father in being. He wasn't just saying that he was a son of God. He was saying he was the son of God. He was saying that he was God the son. Number two, Jesus is equal with God the Father in works. In verse 17, Jesus says that he was that he's been working until now, just as the father's been working till now. So the work of God never stops. Therefore, my work never stops. God never completely rests. Therefore, I never completely rest. The Father's working. Therefore, I'm working. You see the logic there. The Jews got the logic. He's making himself equal with God. And he explains further in verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Father does, The Son also does in like manner, in the same way. God the Father and God the Son are one being and therefore are one in everything they do. And and by the way, when we think about this, we can can add the, the Holy Spirit in too, theologically speaking. This passage doesn't do that per se, but we can extend our Trinitarian theology to the Holy Spirit. And we're talking about the Father and the Son, which... 
is more often the case in the New Testament. But they, they, they're one in everything that they do. They are one in fu- function, one in work, because they're both God. The Son is a distinct person from the Father, and the Holy Spirit's a distinct person from each of them as well. But the Son does not do anything independently of the Father. The works of the Father, we can say, are in one sense done by the Son. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the express image of God the Father. The ESV says the exact imprint of the Father. So when you see the Son, you're seeing an exact imprint of the Father. And so when you see the works of the Son, you're seeing the express images or the exact imprints of the works of the Father. It's a profound mystery, the depths of which we cannot plumb. But it's a glorious mystery that we should think about. Number three, verse 20 says that Jesus is equal with God the Father in knowledge. The Father shows the Son everything He's doing. And He'll show Him even greater works so that you and I will marvel. And last week we talked about how these greater works that the Father's going to show the Son are the Father's works, but they're the Son's works. The the greater works He's going to show Him are the works that the Son is actually going to do on the earth, in His body, on the cross. Redeeming his people. Those are the greater works that the Father is going to show the Son, but the Son's going to be doing them. But the Father keeps no secrets from the Son. He tells him everything. The, the Son has known all things, everything there is to know for all of eternity. The Father doesn't do anything that the Son doesn't do, and the Father doesn't know anything that the Son doesn't know. Number four, Jesus is equal with God the Father in love. The Father has given the Son everything He has and everything He is. What we need to see the even the godness of Jesus is something that, in one sense, He receives from the Father. He is the only begotten Son. That's what it means to be a son. You're begotten of the Father. But but it's not like any other father-son relationship. Every other father-son relationship that we know of, there was a beginning of that relationship in time. There was a time when the Son did not exist in human relationships. But with the Father, the eternal Father and the eternal Son, this is an eternal begottenness, eternal receiving from the Father. That's another profound mystery that we can't get our minds all the way wrapped around. So everything he has, everything he is, is from the Father. And he's shown him all things, given him all things. Why? Precisely because he loves his one and only Son with an infinite, eternal, divine love. But it's also the case that the Son does his Father's will. Why? Precisely because he loves his one and only Father with an infinite Eternal, divine love. The love of the Son toward the Father is equal with the love of the Father toward the Son. Both of them are eternal, infinite. Jesus says in John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. See that that sending. The Father sends the Son. He gives the Son. The Son receives and obeys. 
But that doesn't mean that they're not equal in being and equal in all of these things that we're talking about, particularly here in knowledge. I mean, in love. And what was the father's will that the son does perfectly? What was the father's will? He, he wanted his son to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. That's what we read in Philippians 2, that great passage on the incarnation and the death and the glorification of Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he was only doing what he had seen his father do. Verse 19 assures us of this. Whatever we say and however we think about all this, we can't forget to include what verse 19 says. The son can do nothing of himself, only what he sees the father do. So in all of our theologizing, we we have to make sure to include that and account for that. When Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice, he was imitating the sacrificial love that he had seen in his father. He was being in that moment an express image, an exact imprint of his father. Now, I'm not saying that the father died on a cross. See, that's where we need to make the distinction. The father is not the son. But the the son was doing what his father had done, what he had seen his father doing. From one perspective, the Bible is a love story about a bridegroom and his bride. You've heard that before, right? The Bible is a love story about a bridegroom and a bride. But from an even more fundamental perspective, even below that, the Bible is a love story about a father and a son. God the Father and God the Son have been loving each other for all eternity. Before there was space or time or matter or anything or anyone or angels, anything. There was the perfect and eternal love of the father for his son and the perfect and eternal love of the son for his father. Your salvation is you being swept up into this eternal love story. God's love for you is the overflow of the father's love for the son. And the son's love for the father. Because remember, God is love and he's always been love. He's been love forever, for eternity past. He didn't become love when he created things and people to love. He was love already. Because the Trinity is a community, they were loving one another in eternity. See, when nothing but God existed... The Father was loving the Son and the Spirit. And the Son was loving the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit was loving the Father and the Son. God has always been love. And your salvation, your redemption that we read about from Colossians 1 after we confessed our sins, your redemption, your salvation is the result of His love running over and spilling out onto you, onto us. You've been caught up into the eternal community of God. Think about that. You've been been bound to the Trinity. You are 
you are united to the triune God. You are in God and God is in you. You're vitally connected to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You will live and move and have your being in God forever in glory. All this, all this because God the Son loved you so much that he died on a cross for you. Number five, Jesus is equal with God the Father in power. There are a lot of ways to think about power. When you think about power, you may think about horsepower or political power or the power that keeps the lights on or persuasive power or power plays or power houses. We throw that word around. But the power we see in verse 21 is not like any of those. It's a power over the universe. It's a unique power. It's power that only God has. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. What is the ultimate power in the universe? What's the most powerful power of all? The ability to do what? The ability to give life. Only God has that kind of raw power. Only God can give life. And verse 21 says that Jesus, the son, gives life to whom he will. The reason God can give life is that he has life that is underived. In other words, the life of God is uncaused. Nothing caused it. It doesn't derive from anything else. It didn't come from anywhere or anything. It just always has been. The fancy, there's a fancy theological word if you want to maybe learn a new word here. It's a seity. A seity. A seity is spelled A-S-E-I-T-Y. A seity means originating from self. God's being has no source outside of God. God is self-originating. The life of God is self-derived life. It didn't come from anywhere. and doesn't go back to anything outside of God. That's hard to think about, isn't it? That's another profound mystery. And that's not true of anything else. Anyone else. It's not true of you and me. Your life is derived life. You were given life by your parents. And your parents were given life by their parents. On and on. All the way back. You can trace it back to Genesis 1. All the way back to where there was no life. To when there was no life. Except for the life of God. Who is eternal life. And who gives life. To all. So only God gives life. And here in verse 21, this carpenter from Nazareth is claiming to give life to whomever he wishes. I have power that God has, he's saying. I'm equal with God in power. These are amazing claims. Number six, Jesus is equal with God the Father in authority. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. What's he, what's he mean? What's Jesus mean when he says that the father judges no one? Okay. This creates a little bit of, of tension, doesn't it? Because it, 
Jesus is saying he judges, but he's also saying he just does what he sees the father doing. But the father doesn't judge anyone. So how can Jesus judge anyone? Well, the main distinction Jesus is making is God's judgment in the past. We can say in the old covenant and God's judgment in the new covenant. In the old covenant, the father was the judge. This was every Jew knew this. The scriptures testified to it. Genesis 18.25 says that, the God, that, that God is the judge of all the earth. God is the judge of all the earth. The Father was the judge in the Old Covenant. But Jesus says in John 5.22 that in the New Covenant, at present, now, and at the final day especially, the Father has entrusted the office of judge to the Son. And so, if he's entrusted this to the son, it's saying he's entrusted an office that he's had to the son. The father is transferring that office to the son. And so once again, we see the son doing what he has seen the father do. Once again, we see the works of the father being worked out in history by means of the works of the son. In the Old Testament, the father is the judge. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, on the final day in this passage, the Son is the judge. The Son does what He sees the Father doing. And in the same way, He saw or sees the Father doing it. And on that final day, God, the Son, the Son of God, will have the power to raise everyone from the dead and He will have the authority to execute final judgment on every single soul. He will cast some into eternal punishment and he will reward others with eternal life. He has the power and the authority to do that. The father has given him that power and that authority. And this leads us straight into number seven. Jesus is equal with God, the father in honor. Verse 23 tells us why the father has committed or entrusted all judgment to the son. So that all should honor the son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Since the Son is the one who gives life to whomever He wishes, even as the Father does, since the Son is the one whom the Father has committed all judgment, the Son is to be honored even as the Father has honored, in the same way that the Father is honored. In like manner, the Father is honored. Imagine how blasphemous this sounded to these Jews. Now, it's fashionable for modern theologians to claim, even conservative theologians to claim, that Jesus never actually said that he was God in the flesh. He never claimed that. Well, of course he did. And John 5.23 is an unmistakable example of Jesus being very clear and asserting that he is God. Jesus insists that he is to be honored in the same way, to the same extent his father is honored. Jesus is to be honored, praised, worshipped, adored, feared, trusted, and obeyed in the same way as God the Father. That's the positive statement in the first half. Notice, notice how there's two halves to this verse. 
the positive in the first half of verse 23. All should honor the son just as they honor the father. But then Jesus flips it into a negative in the second half of verse 23. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Jesus says a similar thing in John 15, verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. If you hate Jesus, you hate the father. If you dishonor Jesus, you dishonor the father. Now, there's a popular strand of theology in the modern church. Which says that the Jews don't have to actually believe in Christ to be saved. This view, this view says that the Jews will be saved by virtue of being Jewish, by virtue of being good Jews who believe and practice their Old Testaments and who trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And according to this belief, God does not require Jews to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lord, as God, anything like that. And so he has a separate salvation track for the Jews It's supposed he only requires them to be faithful old covenant believers to be saved. This is a popular view, but it's false. It's satanic. It's anti-Christ. If Jews did not have to believe in the son to be saved, then why does Jesus say he who does not honor the son does not honor the father? And if you hate me, you hate the father. There's no way to God except through Jesus. There's no way to the father except through the son. There's no way to be saved apart from Christ. You cannot embrace God at all without embracing his son, Jesus, the Christ. Finally, number eight. Jesus is equal with God, the father in truth. Look at verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Notice the, the verbs hearing and believing in that verse. Hearing and believing are two sides to the same coin. When he says he who hears my word, he means he who hears my word with faith. When you hear the word of Christ properly, When you really hear Christ's word, it always leads to faith. And faith always comes by hearing the word of God, the word of Christ. How can you believe if you have not heard? What Jesus is saying here is that if you want to have everlasting life, if you want to escape God's judgment, if you want to pass from death to life, then you must hear the word of Christ. And this hearing must lead to Believing in the one who sent the Christ. When you hear the son, you hear the father. When you trust in the son, you trust in the father. When you believe what the son says, you believe what the father says. They both speak the same truth. They are the same truth. They are truth. All of Christ's words in the New Testament are equal with are equal in truth. With all of the father's words. Those who say that Jesus is inferior to God. Those who say that Jesus is not equal with God. And being and works and knowledge and love and power and authority and honor and truth. Have bought into a damning lie. A damning heresy. 
Jesus makes it clear that he's equal with God the Father. To say otherwise, put your soul at risk. Put your soul at risk of the judgment that the Father has entrusted to his divine Son. To say, as the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons do, that Jesus is a created being, a created spirit, is a failure to honor the Son, which is a failure to honor the Father, a failure to honor God. In closing, I want you to consider a passage that I read last week for our epistle lesson, the first part of Hebrews chapter 1. You can, you can turn there if you'd like. The opening paragraph of Hebrews 1 sounds a lot like John five seventeen to 24. Our last point was that Jesus is equal with God the Father in truth. And look with me at Hebrews 1, the first couple of verses. It says, God, that is God the Father, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. We'll stop there. And the old covenant in times past, it says God spoke through the prophets, through visions, through dreams, through lots, through the Urim and the Thummim. But in these last days, in the new covenant. How has he spoken to us? How has God the father spoken to us? To us. Through his son. But you see it's God the father speaking. In both covenants. In the old covenant. Through lesser means. In the new covenant. The father speaks. Through the son. So what the son says. The father says. The truth that we hear from Jesus. Is the truth. Given to him from God the father. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. The incarnation of the Son of God is the exact imprint, the express image, verse 3 says, of God the Father. In Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. If you don't entrust yourself to the Son, you don't know God at all. If you search the Scriptures to find eternal life, but you don't find Jesus... And you don't find Jesus revealed to you as the eternal son of God. Then you haven't found eternal life. Because the scriptures testify about Jesus, the son of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through Jesus. Believe this. Never question this. And you will be saved from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking clearly to us through your son and through your spirit. Who inspired these words that we considered that we've been meditating on. Help us to believe. Help us to know you, to know who you are. And and the ways that you revealed yourself to us. Give us wisdom in believing everything you say and not going beyond what you have revealed in your word. And help us stand firm in the truth, not wavering from it, not doubting it, but being clear 
in our own minds and in our own hearts and our own confession about who you are and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.